Well, would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans? As we continue to make our way through this epistle of Paul, and today we find ourselves beginning Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? Romans 4, verses 1 through 8. This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Amen. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. You may be seated. I wonder if uh, you know what a hagiography is. Maybe you do. Um, How about a biography? You probably do. A biography, of course, is just the account of someone's life. It comes from these two Greek words, bios, meaning life, and the Greek word grapho, meaning writing. I recently read a wonderful biography, an account of the life of George Washington. Well, a hagiography is a form of biography. It's an account of someone's life, but in the place of the word bios, of life, you have the word hagios, which means holy. Uh, Literally, a hagiography is is an account of the life of someone who was considered to have been a holy person or a saint. And there have been many hagiographies written over the course of Jewish and Christian history. Uh, But the thing about hagiographical writing is that it has a tendency to sort of over-idealize its subjects. You know what I mean by that? That there is this tendency in recounting the life of some beloved person to minimize or to downplay their flaws while at the same time to maximize their virtues. So that sometimes the hagiographical account of the person doesn't really resemble or reflect the person very much at all. Now, in our contemporary usage of that term, someone might say that, you know, that biography was good, but it was a bit hagiographical. Or you might attend a a funeral, and you might hear someone say, you know, that eulogy was interesting, but it was a little hagiographical. It means that it may have been a good account of the person's life, 
but I think it made them out to be a little better than they actually were. Now, we can understand why this would happen, right? Uh, Because we want to remember well people that we love. And that is especially true when it comes to people who have had a particularly influential or an important uh, role in our lives, or maybe in the life of a community. Think of J. Gresham Machen and his influence and his importance in the formation of the OPC. Well, there was perhaps no one more loved, more esteemed, more celebrated in Judaism than Father Abraham. And for good reason. Abraham is set forth as a model throughout the Bible, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I think of the way that Isaiah writes, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was one whom I called, and I blessed him and multiplied him. Abraham here is is pictured like a faithful quarry or a, a giant slab of granite from which all other faithful Israelites would be hewn from. Now think of the way that the Lord writes in Genesis chapter 26, 5, where it tells us that the Lord appeared to Isaac, and he said that Abraham obeyed my voice. He kept my charge. He kept my commandments and my statutes and my laws. Abraham loved the Lord. Abraham trusted in his promises. He believed his voice. He obeyed his commands. And so you can begin to see why in time, as the Jewish people would give accounts of the life of Father Abraham, that those accounts might begin to take on a bit of a hagiographical flair. In the passage in front of us today, Paul himself is going to hold up Father Abraham as an example, as a model that is to be imitated. But it will not be hagiographical. It will not be because of Abraham's great works, but rather it will be to hold up Abraham as the model of a desperate sinner who was clinging to God by faith. He holds up Abraham as a model of faith. And so as we work through this passage together, let me give you three points to just hang your thoughts on. Uh, First, we're going to look at the rumor of Abraham's justification. As we consider what was commonly believed and taught among the Jews about Father Abraham, the rumor of Abraham's justification. Secondly, we're going to consider the reality of Abraham's justification as Paul unfolds what the scriptures actually say about this beloved man. And then finally, we're going to look at the result of Abraham's justification as we consider the glorious and blessed results that came to Abraham and that come to us in our justification. So the rumor, the reality, and the result of Abraham's justification. And just by way of reminder, uh, let me tell you where we are in the book of Romans and and sort of help you as we are picking back up 
uh, the themes that were elaborated in the previous chapter. Remember, last week, uh, we, we talked about that Aristotelian triptych, right? Where you, you tell someone what you're going to tell them, and then you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. Well, last week, uh, Paul was telling us what he's going to tell us, and now this week he's telling us, right? And so what did he tell us he was going to tell us? If you look at 327, you see the subject. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And now here as we turn the page into chapter 4, Paul is setting forth Abraham, who has no cause for boasting, but is an example of those who are justified by faith apart from the law. But that stands in pretty sharp contrast to what was commonly believed among the Jewish people. And so first, let's talk about what was believed, this rumor that was prevalent about Abraham's justification. Now, as I said, uh, given all the wonderful things that the Bible does say about Abraham, we, we can understand why the Jewish people would give accounts of his life that made him appear better than he was. They, they forget all of the sins. They sometimes forget that he was a pagan idol worshiper from the Chaldeans. They forget what he did with Sarah's mistress and how he treated his wife when he went down into Egypt. They forget many, many things. Um, examples are prevalent. Let me give you just a few. Uh, for example, in Jubilees 23.10, we read that Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds that he had before the Lord, and that he was well-pleasing in righteousness all of the days of his life. Another example from the prayer of Manasseh says, Thou, O Lord, that art the God of the righteous, you have not appointed repentance unto the righteous, unto Abraham, for Abraham did not sin against you. Or in the Kiddushin, we read that we find that Abraham, our father, had performed the whole of the law even before it was delivered. Now, there are many other things written about Abraham, but just think about these three things. I've, I've cherry-picked these three uh, because of what they tell us. That Abraham was perfect, that he was sinless and had no need for repentance, that he had performed the whole law even before it was delivered. Now perhaps given that sort of hagiographical climate, it's not surprising that the belief developed among the Jews that Abraham could be justified by his works, and that Abraham was intrinsically righteous before God, and that Abraham was the perfect exemplar of Torah obedience. That helps us to make sense of what Paul's saying here in verses 1 through 2. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. You see, Paul is challenging this commonly held belief that Abraham was justified by his works, and therefore he had some ground for boasting. 
Now, admittedly, there's a conditional clause here that's a little bit difficult, but it seems that what Paul is doing is that he's rhetorically allowing for the moment the presumption that Abraham was justified by his works. He says, if that's the case, if Abraham is really justified by his works, then he has something to boast about. Right? If Abraham perfectly obeyed the law even before it was delivered, uh, if he was a model of Torah obedience, then he has a little reason to crow. He has a little reason to boast. But notice that no sooner does Paul raise the possibility that this might be true, then he immediately rejects it and dismisses it as ridiculous. But not before God. Our English word, but, does not really carry the weight of the Greek adversative, Allah, that is used here. Paul is saying, this could never be true. It is unimaginable for Paul, that Abraham, or anyone else for that matter, could have any grounds of boasting whatsoever in the presence of the holy God. Well, if that's the rumor that Abraham's justification might be according to his works, what's the reality? What is actually true? And notice, how does Paul argue? Where does he go? Does he go to the rabbis? Does he go to uh, unpack the Mishnah, the oral tradition of the Jews? No, he says, what does the Scripture say? What does the Scripture say? Now, just as an aside here, I want to take a few minutes just to to say a few things about this wonderful question. Uh, Because it's an important question. And I also want to... um, say that I'm, I'm borrowing some of this from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, who I heard speak on this question. What does the scripture say? The first is this. Paul is about to quote from Genesis 15, but he doesn't tell us what does the book of Genesis say. He says, what does the scripture say? Now, it would not be wrong to say what does Genesis say. That would be accurate and true. But in asking what does the Scripture say, there's, there's this sense that all of Scripture is one. That this whole library of books, this whole canon of books, have one message. That whatever the genre, whoever the penman, they speak with one voice. There is a unity even in their diversity. And the unity comes from the fact that they are the very Word of God. The second thing I want to say about this is that the form that is used here in Greek, what do the scriptures say? For those of you who have studied a little bit of Greek, you'll recognize this is the very first thing you learn, the present active indicative, right? Uh, What do the scriptures say? We might even translate this, what are the scriptures saying? That is to say that the scriptures continue to speak. Scriptures are not a dead, dusty, old book about things that happened in the past. The scriptures are what the author of Hebrews calls the living and active word of God. The scriptures continue to speak. And third, because they are the living and active word of God and they continue to speak, Paul can appeal to them as authoritative for the lives of God's people. It matters 
who says. It's one thing for a rabbi or for a teacher to speak. It's another thing for God to speak. When God speaks, it comes with authority. And therefore, this question, what do the scriptures say, is really the question that should govern all of our life. This is a question that we should ask ourselves frequently. What do the scriptures say about this issue in my life? What do the scriptures teach me? What is God saying? Well, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say about Abraham's justification? Was Abraham justified by his works? What do the scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Whatever the rumor was, the reality is this, that Abraham is an example of one who is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The scriptures say that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And to make this point, Paul quotes from Genesis 15. Now, you might remember the context of Genesis 15. Uh, It's all about that great promise that God made to Abraham. He tells Abraham to look up at the stars of the heavens and to count them if he can, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. And then in order to confirm this promise to Abraham, he confirms it in what seems to us to be a pretty strange way. Although in the ancient Near East, it would not have seemed strange because what unfolds is a covenant-making ritual. He has Abraham begin this covenant-making ceremony where he cuts all of these animals, right, a goat, and a ram, and then he takes all these birds, turtle doves, and pigeons, and he he lays them out. He takes their carcasses, their dead bodies, and bloodied, and he lays them aside one another and creates a sort of bloody trough or a bloody pathway. And the idea was that in these covenant-making ceremonies, the parties who were swearing allegiance to the covenant would walk through these bloody pieces of the animals while they were swearing the promises that they had made. And it was sort of a what we would call a self-maledictory oath, right? Um, I, I swear to do this, right? Or stick a needle in my eye, hope to die, that kind of thing, right? Except it was much more severe. If I fail to make good on these promises, may what has been done to these animals, may that be done to me if I fail to make good on my side of the covenant. Well, in Genesis 15, what happens? Well, God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And instead of both Abraham and God walking through the pieces together, God alone walks through the pieces of the animals, swearing to make good on his promise to Abraham. It's a strange way of making a covenant. Incidentally, I once heard uh, Dr. Archie Sproul talking about this, and someone asked him if he had a life verse. He said, yeah, Genesis 15, (laughs) my life verse. They go and they read it, right? And it's like, what in the world is this about? He says, this is because... Our hope depends on God alone swearing 
to keep his promises. Let me put it another way. Just ask the question, what is Abraham doing? What does the scripture say he does? It says he believes God and he got put to sleep. That's it. All that Abraham does. You see why Paul goes back to Genesis 15 when he wants to say that Abraham was justified by faith alone apart from his works because what works was Abraham doing? That's it. He slept while God swore to fulfill all of the promises to him. And Paul reasons that this is the difference between the way of grace and the way of works. Now, to the one who works, he says, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, if somebody works for something, they receive their wages. They have a right to their wages because they have earned those wages. I mean, just think about this in the context of your own job. When you finish a week's work or a month's work, depending on when you get paid, you expect to be paid, don't you? And if you're not paid, you're going to have a problem. You expect to be paid because you worked for it. You earned it. It's not a gift to you. Your employer doesn't just hand out money. Your employer gives you money in exchange for your labor, in exchange for what you've done. He doesn't just give you money for sitting at home on your couch doing nothing. You receive a paycheck in exchange for work. It's not a gift. And that is Paul's point. If you earn it, it's not a gift. And it's not of grace. And that is true with Abraham as well. If Abraham's justification was based on his works, then it would not be of grace. It would be his due. He would have the right to expect it from God. But that is not how Abraham was justified. What work had he done? He believed God and he slept. On the other hand, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, well, what about faith, though? Isn't faith a work? It may not be all the righteousness required in the law, but it's something, isn't it? And doesn't it say that faith is counted as righteousness? Maybe, maybe it's that God accepts this sort of lesser work of faith instead of the harder work of perfect obedience. Since no one can give perfect obedience, he'll just accept faith in its place. But that can't be. Paul's already completely ruled that out. If faith is a work, then Abraham has something to boast about. That he's a believer. That he's trusted in God. No, when Paul says that his faith is counted as righteousness, it's not faith in itself. It's shorthand for Paul. It's not that there's some virtue in faith. It is faith in Christ. When Paul speaks of faith, 
he speaks of faith in the object that it's trusting in. It's faith in Christ. Think back to the way he's already gone over this, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does faith do? Faith receives Christ. It receives Christ in all of his work. When Paul says that faith is counted as righteousness, it's faith that is clinging to the promises of God fulfilled in his son. When Abraham was justified by faith, it was because Abraham was clinging to those promises that God had made to him. That's our hope. Our hope is not in the greatness of our faith. Our hope is in the God who justifies the ungodly because the body and blood of Jesus Christ have been put forward as that redeeming, propitiating sacrifice. That's the hope. It's your hope. It's my hope. It's Abraham's hope. Abraham's faith looked through the bloody sacrifices to Jesus. Abraham believed in Jesus. Abraham believed in that promised seed that would come. And the reason I can say that so confidently is because Jesus said that. He said to the Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and he was glad. He says that about Abraham's trusting in the promised seed. That is Abraham's hope. It was David's hope. And so if Abraham illustrates the reality that God justifies sinners through faith, then David corroborates that reality and he shows us its results. And that brings us then to our last point, the result of Abraham's justification. The result of Abraham's justification. You see it there in verses 6 through 8. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What happens when we are justified by faith? Well, to understand this, we need to reflect on David's words here. David here is quoting from Psalm 32, and he employs this familiar structure to us, this chiastic structure, which is sort of like, again, it's like a literary sandwich, right? You can think of two pieces of bread with meat in the middle. You have these two statements, these two statements of blessing, like the pieces of bread of the sandwich. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And these two statements sort of help to interpret one another. What does it mean to be forgiven? What does that mean? We speak of that so often. What does it mean that you are forgiven of your sins? It means that God is not counting your sins against you. He's not holding them against you. And then in between these two statements of blessing, you have the explanation of how this is possible. How is it possible that God can forgive my sins? How is it possible that he cannot hold them against me? Well, it is only possible because what does he do? He covers them. He covers them. And how does he cover them? He covers them with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. 
This is what David was talking about. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. When David was talking about this, he was talking about the righteousness that God covers with, that he counts apart from works. The reason that Abraham or David or you and I or anyone are justified is because your sins are covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Abraham, then, is a model for us, not because Abraham had anything in himself of which to boast, but because by faith he simply was clinging to the promises of God. By faith he was holding fast to that promise that God would be true to his word, that God would send a Savior. Abraham was just just a man, just like us. Before he was justified by faith, he was among the ungodly. You wouldn't know him from any other Chaldean. He was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper. But then God called him. Why did God call him? Did he look out among the Chaldeans and think, you know, that one, he's particularly good? No. He didn't call Abraham for anything in Abraham, but out of his own sovereign good pleasure, he called Abraham, and then he made promises to him, and Abraham believed him. Abraham set aside all of his other idols. He turned his back on them, and he believed in God. And in that moment, Abraham went from being ungodly to being godly. God justified the ungodly. In that moment, Abraham was dressed up and covered in the godly, righteous perfections of Jesus who was to come. That is why Abraham is the exemplar for you. Not because he's such a great guy, but because he leads you to Jesus. Because he he draws you to the one who can cover you with his righteousness. You know, in some ways, the whole New Testament is a hagiography. It's a hagiography of Jesus. It's an account of his holy, blameless life. But unlike the hagiographies of men, this hagiography is true. It's not exaggerated. When the Bible speaks about the perfections of Jesus, when it tells you that he fulfilled the law of God, when it tells you that he was obedient in your place, that was true. He never had an unchaste thought. He never had sinful anger. He never worshipped anything other than his father, anyone other than his father. He never stole. He never lied, not even a white lie. He always perfectly kept God's commands. The Bible, when it tells us about the life of Jesus, when it tells us about his compassion, when it tells us about his kindness, when it tells us about his humility, it's not exaggerating. 
It's telling us about the kind of righteousness that covers us. When we see Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, we see the kind of righteousness that we need, the kind of righteousness which can make its way into God's presence in heaven. The New Testament recounts no flaws, no failures of Jesus because he had none. It recounts all of his righteous virtue because it was the substance of his life. It's the one true hagiography where all of the righteous perfections that cover our sin, saints, sin-stained souls, are put on marvelous display. So that when God looks at us, what does he say? He says, you know, I recognize that righteousness. I recognize that obedience. That's the perfect obedience of my son. Come and enter in. What do the scriptures say? They say this, that we may be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Is that your hope today? I pray it is. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the righteousness of our Savior. We thank you that your word is true and that it tells us about a godly man, the one true godly man who never sinned, who never failed, who always was perfectly obedient. And he did all of this in our place. And then marvelously in our place, he went to the cross and he bore all of our sin and shame and all of the curse that was due to us. He bore all of your wrath in order that we might be reconciled to you, in order that we might be clothed in you in order that we might have this righteousness, that we might be found in him. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, having clothed us in this righteousness, now even work this righteousness out in our lives by your Holy Spirit, which you have poured out upon us, that we might seek to honor you and glorify you, that we might live lives of faith and repentance before you, that like Father Abraham, we might believe and that it would be accounted to us for righteousness. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't touch on this much in the sermon because I had gone over it before and I thought, you know, the table is a, a good place to do this. What I didn't touch on much was that that strange sentence that we believe in him who justifies the ungodly. That is something that in the Old Testament was reprehensible. That a judge who was a righteous judge would justify someone who was ungodly. The Bible says to judges... You shall not justify the ungodly. You shall punish the ungodly. You shall not acquit the ungodly and punish the righteous. You shall acquit the righteous and punish the ungodly. So how is it that the whole gospel 
is that we believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. Well, that is the substance of the gospel because, of course, God does punish the ungodly. And that is why this is a perfect place to talk about this. Because at this meal, we see that God's justice is not let go of. God does not just wink at sin. He does not just let it go. He punishes the ungodly in Christ. These elements are so familiar to us that we sometimes forget that they represent a body torn to pieces and blood poured out. But those are the elements that Jesus gave us so that we might always remember how it is that God can justify the ungodly. It is only because he punishes the sins of the ungodly in his son, and then he covers them with the righteousness of his son. So that as we come to this table today, we don't come as ungodly. We come as those who are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And this is a reminder to us and it is the very, the very thing in which we have communion with God. And so as we come today, let's come boldly, knowing that we are covered through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are covered by his righteousness and are able to sit at this table and have communion with God because God has justified the ungodly in this way. Now, at the same time, there is a warning in these elements. The warning comes to those who are not covered by the blood of Christ. Those who have not believed in Christ and therefore had their faith counted as righteousness. If you have not believed in Christ, if you are not like Father Abraham, if you have not trusted in him and rested in him for salvation, then you are not covered by Christ. And the reality is that the very things of which these elements speak, a body torn to pieces and blood spilled out, that is still on your head before God. And so even at this table, I would call you to faith in Christ. I would call you to look to the Son and to trust in Him and to have your sins covered over that you might be reconciled to Him. And so as we come to this table today, let's come covered in the blood and righteousness of Christ and come and find the strength and nourishment uh, that he offers to us here. Let's pray that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and set them apart for this holy use. Lord, as we come now to your table, we know in ourselves we don't deserve to be here. We are just as ungodly as Abraham was, and yet, Lord, through faith, you have justified the ungodly because you have punished all of our wickedness in Christ and we can rely on the fact that you are righteous and that you will not punish, again, punish us again for the same sins already punished. Instead, Lord, you clothe us in those righteous perfections and in clothing us in those perfections, you are glad to receive us into your presence and to commune with us and have fellowship with us and so, Lord, we pray that even now you would take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and set them apart for this holy use, that as we receive them with faith, that we might receive Christ himself and all of his benefits to us. And so we ask these things now in Jesus' name.
Amen.